This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Nathaniel Shuda. He's a solutions architect at Pivotal, a frequent conference speaker, and an adjunct professor at the University of Minnesota, where he teaches students to embrace dynamic languages. Nathaniel is also the presenter of the video, I'm a Software Architect, Now What? And he spoke at O'Reilly's Software Architecture Conference in London this past October. You can view both of these items on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com. We'll talk to Nate about the role of the software architect, the skills that are needed to succeed in that role, and how one can make the move from being a software developer to being a software architect. Enjoy the show. Hi, Nate. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, first, let me ask you this. Are we still at a point in the industry where more and more people are moving from the developer role to the architect role? Are you, are you still seeing a lot of that? Absolutely. You know, I think more and more companies are seeing the value of architecture and architects. You know, you, you hear about people who will say, well, you know, we're agile, so we don't need architects. And then they get two years down the road and they realize that people are still making architectural decisions. They just didn't make very good ones. And now they're having to deal with the ramifications of that. And so I think more and more companies are discovering that it's good to have that architect role identified and, and have somebody who is actively making those decisions so you don't result or end up with that accidental architecture that many companies end up having. And the developer role is still at least largely seen as like a at least one stepping stone to that? Yeah, it's certainly not the only way to get to architect, but it's the most common. You know, I think most of us grew up that way. You know, you kind of work your way up the ranks, become a senior developer, senior technologist, senior engineer, and then you have that opportunity potentially to move into architecture. You know, not everybody wants to do that because the, the skills necessary to be an architect are, are not completely analogous to what it took to be a good developer. And so some people, I think, also look at that and they say, you know, I'm not really not interested in, in some of the things that are required to, to be a good architect. And we still need really good engineers. You know, that, that's not going to change. So not everybody should feel like they have to become an architect just because that's, you know, potentially the next, next step on the road. And we'll definitely talk about some of those skills in just a couple of minutes. But let me ask you this. I know there's not a single or an easy answer to this question, but can you at least generalize about what the job of a software architect is? I mean, it obviously varies from company to company, but in your mind, what's the bottom line? Well, the, the right answer, of course, is it depends. You know, and you're absolutely right. Different organizations will have different views of that. And even within an organization, there are multiple different roles that an architect can play. You know, there's sort of that solutions architect concept, which is maybe kind of lead engineer, anchor, however you want to phrase it. You know, that's pretty common that there's, there's a significant number of those are, are necessary generally. And then usually there's someone maybe that sits kind of above that, maybe has responsibility for multiple projects. And some companies will call that like a portfolio architect or a you know, lead architect or something like that. And of course, a lot of organizations also have enterprise architects, you know, which are people who are trying to look across their entire organization and come up with common patterns, common approaches, et cetera. So there's, there's lots of different things within that idea of architect architecture. And of course, everybody seems to have a very different view on that. I'm convinced you could ask 20 different people, what does an architect do? And you're going to get 35 different answers. You know, it's just a given. You know, and, and even within the same company, you know, I, I think back to my last stop and you know, there were 20 of us in my area and we all worked on different things and it, it really varied depending on even the project you were on, you know, sort of what, what you were going to do day in, day out and, and what that actually meant. And Nate, it seems like your advice, what, what you say in your videos and conference presentations comes at least in part from personal experience. So can you talk about your personal climb from developer to architect and the difficulties and the surprises that, that you faced? 
Yeah, absolutely. So a longtime developer, you know, written a lot of code over the years in various different languages. And, you know, I, I think I played the architect role far before I ever had the official title. Some organizations guard that title pretty, pretty jealously and they don't give it out very easily. You know, that's starting to change a bit. You know, I think as more companies sort of understand that you probably can't have enough architects, you know, so it, it isn't as precious as, as some people make it out to be. But it is definitely a change. And I think a lot of people look at the role of architect and they think, oh, good, it's the decision maker. And I want to be the person who's making those technical decisions. You know, I want to be the one who decides, you know, which JavaScript framework we're going to all loathe in six months. And, and, and that's certainly part of the job. It's an important part of the job. But in the, the bigger picture, as an architect, you have to deal with so many different stakeholders. You know, as a developer, we're largely insulated from much of the politics of the organization. And we don't have to deal with, you know, maybe senior management as often. And you get into that architecture role, and now you have to work with your developers. So you have to be technical enough to, to still fit in that position and, and get their respect. But then an hour later, you're going to have a meeting with senior management and you need to be able to discuss these technical problems in a way that they're going to understand. You can't just throw out a bunch of technical jargon and expect them to, to get it. And then you might have a meeting later in the day with your business partners and they're going to have a totally different view on how the system works and what they need the system to do. And now you've got to go ahead and craft your message so that it works for that group too. You know, I like to say that as architects, we're like the Rosetta Stone of an organization. We're the ones that are playing this translation game between you know, the development side, the management side, the business side. And you have to be able to flow comfortably between those groups, you know, often one meeting after another. And that's not a comfortable place for a lot of us. You know, I mean, I look back at my computer science training and, you know, there, there wasn't a class on, you know, dealing with humans 101 or anything like that. And, and then you get to be an architect. And that's a huge part of the job is working with people, getting them to understand what you're trying to do, advocate for your solution or your desired language choice, technology choice, whatever it happens to be. And, you know, that, that doesn't come easily to some of us. You know, I think a lot of us got into this because, hey, technology, I get technology. And then you realize that technology problems aren't that hard to solve. It's people problems that we have to deal with. And as an architect, that's front and center in your day in day life is working with your peers, working with your business partners, working with your management to, to get these solutions. And the phrase you used at your presentation last month at the Software Architecture Conference was storyteller. You said that, you know, the architect is a storyteller. Absolutely. That's a huge part of it is taking this message and figuring out how to craft it, how to shape it for the group I need to present it to. You know, and it, it's telling a story again and again and again. You know, I always like to say you have to say it three times before somebody gets it. And so it's it's crafting that message so that your developers get it so they can go build it. You know, and, and if I can't communicate it to my developers, they can't build it. And so my architecture is just a fiction at that point. But by the same token, I have to communicate that vision to the other stakeholders, the people who are writing the checks, the people who are at that senior management level overseeing our projects, because if they don't buy my vision, if I haven't done a good job getting them to understand where we're going and why we're doing it, they're going to put the kibosh on me right there. So it's being able to take that core central idea and spin that yarn so that it resonates not just for one group, but for all of these groups. And that's a challenge because I can't just take like the same deck and present it to my developers and then go present it to my business people and then go present it to my management. It has to be a different message as I move from one group to the other. And we don't always have the same comfort level there. You know, I remember the first time I had to give a presentation to all of our like senior architects, like the, the chief architects in the company. And it was an intimidating room to be in. And yet it's like, all right, what 
buttons do I need to press here? What message, what verbiage do I need to use? So these guys understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because they all had the ability to basically stop my project in its tracks if they didn't like what I was saying. So I had to make sure I knew, okay, what are their their sort of catchphrases or what, what are their you know bullet points they're looking for? You know, that, that I'm going to make sure I'm checking the box for them so that, yes, I have thought of your pet issue and, and here's how we're going to solve it. But then also react to when they start asking you questions and, okay, how do I present myself confidently? And that, yep, I know what I'm doing and this is the right path. One of the other things that you've said is a change that, that maybe some developers have some uh, need some time to adjust to is that there's more gray area as an architect that you know it's not uh, like you've said either compiles or it doesn't that that's not the case anymore no and, and so many of the artifacts that we create as architects they're done basically when people stop giving you feedback you know it, there is no easy test that I can write that says, yes, this document is is sufficient or it, it does what it needs to do. So much of what we do as architects is you put something together, you start showing it to people, you get feedback, you react to that feedback, and then you get another round of feedback. And eventually people just sort of stop giving you feedback. And it's like, all right, I'm guessing we're, we're probably about the right place. you know. And, and the correct answer to everything, as I said before, in this world is it depends. You know, is, is this the right document? Well, it depends on my audience. It depends on on who it is that's looking at this and, and what they expect me to have. And, you know, it, it's amazing to me how many times I've crafted something, you get some feedback, you react to it, and then the person who gave you that information or gave you that feedback more or less says they want it the way it was before. And it's like, oh, okay, I can do that. You know, and then you, you can't get too caught up in that. You just have to accept it as this is input and I'm going to react to that input and move on and, and see where that gets us. But yeah, it is, it is definitely a challenge when you go from that world of it compiles or it doesn't, the test passes or it doesn't, to a world of, well, it's all vague and gray and you might think it's fantastic and your peers might think it's fantastic, but the chief architect thinks it's not. So what are you going to do about that? You know, you're going to have to work it, tweak it, whatever is necessary so that that person is comfortable and signs off on it. So I think we've we've covered the communication part of that, that the necessity to be a good communicator. But there are a lot of other soft skills that developers may need to work on to succeed as an architect. Let's talk about a few of them, one being leadership ability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a huge part of being an architect is, is being able to lead, obviously, yourself. You know, one of the other challenges when it comes to being an architect is our role is, is somewhat vague and undefined. And a lot of companies, you know, we, we don't have that day-to-day direction that you do as a developer. You know, when I'm in a project room as a developer, it's just, you know, pull the next card, grab the next story, let's pair on this and, and pound out the next piece of functionality. And, and then you get to be an architect and it's like, well, am I working on the right thing? Well, that's a great question. You know, you, you better find out a good answer to it. And, you know, it, it also changes a lot day to day. You know, I've, I've had a lot of experiences where you're kind of going down one path and then you have a meeting that completely blows up your plan for the week. You know, that was the most common thing for me, you know, honestly, is you, you have a plan on Monday. Okay, this is what I'm going to do this week. And then by Friday, you look back and you're like, yep, didn't get to any of that. You know, there were nine other emergencies that cropped up or I had to deal with this, had to deal with that. And, you know, so you need to have a fair amount of flexibility. You know, if, if you're very rote that I, you know, I come in and I work on this thing and I put it down, you may not get that luxury. You know, we, we often get pulled into, you know, something blew, blew up in production. And so now guess what? Your day is spent trying to, to work on that. And, and so if you are, are really caught in that, but I had a plan, it usually doesn't survive contact with the proverbial enemy. So you need to be able to deal with that personally, but you also need to be able to convince other people 
that you're going in the right direction. And, and a lot of that for us as architects, you know, it isn't so much leadership in terms of you report to me, so you should do what I say. It's more the influence of me convincing you that this is the right way to go. And the real jujitsu of it is if I can convince you that it was your idea, that works a lot better than me trying to force you to do something. If I can make you think that, no, no, you always did want to use, you know, this library, didn't you? You know, that's, that's part of the, you know, the, the judo, the jujitsu of it is to get someone convinced that that, that came, came from them, not from me. You know, and part of that too is, is being able to say no gently as opposed to just no because I said so. That kind of goes to something else I've, I've heard you say that as far as like team leadership goes, your best tool is, isn't a hammer, but a cup of coffee, right? Absolutely. And, and so part of that is just building that relationship, that trust with a team. You know, so I've had as a developer experience with what I refer to as a drive-by architect, you know, the person who sort of swings into the project room for an hour, you know, maybe every other week. And, you know, mostly they just kind of blow a bunch of stuff up. You know, they write a bunch of stuff on the whiteboard and then they run on to the next meeting and, and you're kind of left there befuddled and you're like, well, I, I don't know what we're supposed to do now. That's not a very effective way to be an architect. You know, you, you need to be present with your teams as, as much as your schedule allows, but you need to build that rapport, build that trust so that when you have to have that conversation, because it will happen. Every project I've ever been on, you know, your, your lead, your developers, they come up with some solution. You're like, yeah, I just, we can't do that. You know, I'm sorry that library isn't approved or, you know, there's no way we can get that through the process and time, or, you know, we, we have to rely on something from this vendor or that vendor, you know, and, and those aren't always fun because on the one hand, you really want to pat your team on the back. It's like, hey, that was a really clever solution. I like where you guys are going. I want you to still think about innovative ways of, of solving problems, but in the same breath, here's the reality of our organization and here's the things that we need to react to. And, and so helping them understand why we need to do it this way or that way is really beneficial. But if you don't have that trust, if you don't have that relationship, it's much, much harder to get someone to, to sort of buy in. And the most effective way I have found to gain that is to go out and grab a cup of coffee with somebody or grab a lunch with them. You know, you have to make it about more than just here what I'm writing on the whiteboard or this document I handed you. You have to have some of that personal rapport and be able to talk to each other as human beings. You know, I think one of the things I'm proudest of in my career is, you know, I worked with a team the last time I was out in their city. They're all like, hey, we got to go out and grab drinks. We got to grab dinner. You know, we really want to hang out with you. And we hadn't worked together for months at that point, but these guys still wanted to get together with me. And I thought, all right, well, I must have done something right there because they didn't just like, oh, thank God he's gone. You know, so that's part of it is really being able to invest in those relationships. And, you know, that's another one of those soft skills that we don't get in computer science land. But you have to be able to build those relationships, build those friendships and, and have that trust to be able to fall back on when you inevitably run into the production outage or, or some other kind of thing that, that causes some stress to be injected into the system. Another one of the soft skills that might not be at the top of everyone's mind, but turns out to be really important is selling and self-promotion, like selling yourself and increasing your own visibility, and, but also selling your, your team's decisions, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and again, that's another one of those things that as a developer, all we really have to do is kind of convince the project room. You know, it's like if, I, if I'm going the right direction I, and I, I've got everybody kind of believing that we can make it work. And then you get to architect level and it isn't just about my project room anymore. It's about my peers. It's about senior management. It's about the business partners. And if I'm not, again, constantly kind of reinforcing that vision, reinforcing that story, using the right language for whatever group I happen to be interacting with, Eventually, someone's like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. 
You know, so that's a huge part of it is being willing and able to do that, to bring those things up in those meetings and, and also to cultivate those relationships with people who can speak for you when you're not there. Because inevitably, there will be a meeting that you didn't get invited to or you're triple booked and you couldn't make it. And so you really need somebody else who can step in and say, no, 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 that's that's not what Nate's trying to do here. This is what Nate's trying to do. And in many cases, that indirection is so much more powerful for us. You know, one of the challenges that we face as architects is that we rarely have that sort of direct line of sight to the decision maker. And so we often have to kind of bounce things off a wall to get that message there. And that's, again, where that cultivation of relationships becomes so important. You know, it isn't just, you know, my immediate team and, and whatnot that I have to have that rapport with. It might have to be the, the VP of engineering or even some direct reports on, on her teams that I need to make sure they're all on board with what I'm doing. And so I've, multiple times in my career, I've found myself in a situation where I knew the right person to go talk to and that person was able to advocate on my behalf. And so I get the right message to, to that person and then she can go take that message to someone else to say, yep, this is what we think makes sense. And because it's coming from that trusted source or that trusted source is reinforcing what I'm saying, it gets everybody much more comfortable with what we're trying to do. And a lot of times that's really what it boils down to is the first time they're hearing it, whether that's your business partner, senior management, whatever, there can be some resistance. But if it's the third, fourth, fifth time they've heard it, it's coming from multiple sources. Versus like, oh, yeah, no, that's right. That is the right approach. That makes a lot of sense. I'm hearing a lot of people say this, and it just kind of helps smooth out that path for us. Well, moving at least somewhat away from softer skills, I wanted to bring up that you'll be speaking again at the next Software Architecture Conference in February in New York. And the focus of your talk there is thinking architecturally. And that's really more about technology choices, right? Absolutely. So I don't know what technology we're all going to be playing with two years from now. And anybody who says they know exactly what framework or library we're all going to be talking about in two years is lying to you. There's just no way. I'm pretty confident it's going to be different than what we're talking about now. You know, I was giving a talk about like Angular and React a few months ago. And one of the points I made in that talk is that, you know, if you're struggling with the decision between Angular and React, don't worry about it because you're going to be wrong over some time frame. You know, so whether that's six months, two years, I don't know. But eventually, this stuff always has a history of being replaced. So we have to embrace the fact that there will be change in the future. I cannot prevent that. But it's important that we think about that strategically. You know, we can't be reactionary. It can't be chasing the next shiny new thing. It, it has to be a little more methodical than that. You know, so what do we do when presented with a technology choice like React versus Angular? What should we do? And, and how do we come to that conclusion? in a way that isn't just, well, I just threw a dart at the wall, or worse, well, I just like Angular, you know, or I like React. You know, and, and as developers, we have this tendency to just chase the shiny new thing. But as an architect, we can't afford to do that because the decisions that we're making have long-lasting impact. You know, and so we need to think through that. And, and the quote that really kind of inspired me to come up with this, this talk was a Rich Hickey quote where he said that programmers know the benefits of everything and the trade-offs of nothing. As an architect, we got to flip that script. You know, we have to be thinking about trade-offs because every decision we make is a trade-off. You know, we, we can increase this, but it'll decrease that. We do this, it's going to make this easier, but that harder. That's the art of being an architect is thinking through that and understanding that balance and finding the right set of things that this isn't, nothing's perfect. There's no silver uh, spoon. There's no golden hammer, you know, that's going to solve all these problems. We need to think through and say, yep, yeah, this, this is 
kind of the, the least worst approach in some cases you know, that we have to make. You know, and we have to do that also within the sense that our, we know our developers want to play with new things. And we also have to make sure we're not on a burning platform. You know, nothing hurts quite so much as realizing the thing you come to rely on is now end of life or no one else is using it. And so we can't hire, we can't staff. Yeah, that's, that's no fun either. But, you know, so it's, it's finding that balance between chasing the shiny new thing, you know, be it staying on platforms that have a future, you know, developing expertise in the thing you're using, you know, and that's, that's part of the challenge and part of the fun of, of doing this, you know, but it, it has to be more strategic than the way a lot of us have approached it, which is just kind of the reactionary, hey, this is shiny, let's go play with that. Can you explain fitness functions and their importance in making these kind of technology decisions? Absolutely. So this whole concept comes from the, the new book, Evolutionary Architecture, and it's a great concept. It comes out of sort of the evolutionary computing concept that says, is this mutation closer or further away from our goal? And so you, know, you mutate the algorithm. Is this better or worse? Oh, it's better. Okay, keep going. If it's worse, throw it away. Try again. So the same idea can be applied to architecture. You know, we know it's going to change. There's just no getting around that. And as an architect, I cannot be involved in every single decision my teams are going to have to make. I just don't have enough time. And so I have to empower my teams to, to do the things they think is right, to move in the direction that they think makes sense. But we need to make sure we're still staying within general guidelines that we're trying to achieve with this architecture. And so the idea of a fitness function is essentially a test that we apply to the architecture. And so depending on what we're trying to do, you can come up with you know, different kinds of concepts. But you know, let's say we know that response time is really important. So we might say that uh, you know, all services must have a response time of less than I don't know, 200 milliseconds or something. Well, we can measure that and we can write a test that basically pings our services and says, did we get the response time that we expected? So then if we make a change at some point that violates that constraint, the test will fail and we'll know, oops, that design decision moves us away from what we're trying to do as opposed to closer. And then we can adjust accordingly. And it might be that, well, that fitness function no longer applies or it needs to change. And then we do. Otherwise, like, yep, we need to back that change out, try something different. Now, sometimes those fitness functions might have to be sadly manual. You know, we can't automate everything. You know, sometimes a fitness function for us actually is more a legal thing, you know, where the, the lawyers need to sign off on our privacy policy or something. So any change to that must go through, must go through legal and, and they have to agree to it. Yeah, but the general idea is, is how do we essentially, I, I would almost say like test drive our architecture, you know, that, that's pushing it a little far, but how do we make sure that the decisions we're making day in, day out on a project are staying within the spirit of what we're trying to do architecturally? And so the hard part of that, honestly, is kind of that upfront thinking of what are the fitness functions that make sense for this particular application. It's gonna vary radically from one application to another. And so we need to kind of think through that. And then how do we actually test that? What does that look like in test format? And then again, kind of reacting to that as the project evolves. Well, Nate, this has been great and, and a lot of good advice and a lot to think about. Uh, if our listeners wanna find out more about your activities, where can they look? Well, absolutely, thank you for having me. Well, I'm, I'm on Twitter, not super active there, but I, I'm on Twitter at, at NT Shooter. Uh, I'm also at meetups and conferences all over the place as an advocate for Pivotal. You can probably find me in some city near you at some point in the future. So that's probably the easiest thing to do is just keep track of me there. Nathaniel Shuda, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, appreciate it. Well, the latest O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference was held in London last month from October 16th to 18th. And here to give us a wrap-up of some of the things that were happening there is Brian Foster, a content lead at O'Reilly Media and co-chair of the Software Architecture Conference. Hey, Brian, thanks for joining us. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Okay, so uh, wrapping up Software Architecture London, what were some of the themes that, that were kind of most prevalent there? 
It was a really interesting show. Again, I feel like with each show now, this being the third year that we're doing the conference in total, we've seen this nice evolution of key themes. Um, some tried and true areas, you know, remain very relevant, you know, to this audience. Uh, microservices, again, continuing to be one of those. But we've seen the conversation, and we saw this very much in London, where people that have started to build some of these systems using microservices are now trying to understand what's the next level of microservice usage. If I have a system, how do I or, or services, how do I string together, you know, multiple, you know, services together and, and create a system? And what some of the concerns we were seeing and, and what was reflected in some of the conversations in sessions, you know, for example, was how do I, you know, analyze and, and look at di some data concerns as it relates to microservices? How do I monitor, you know, a system of microservices? How do I, you know, scale microservices? And what does that mean for performance? So there was a lot of different concerns that definitely came up a level um, that was very much relevant. And I think another area that we're seeing, you know, some really interesting conversations emerge um, is around communication, both at a system level. So again, you know, what does it mean when you have a lot of these services and how do they talk to one another? But on the flip side, and also more from a soft skills perspective, how do people communicate some of these technical decisions to key stakeholders up and down an organization. We saw a lot of good sessions around that and essentially providing attendees with some of these basic skills, whether they're looking, whether their communication issue is from a more technical perspective, for example, trying to implement some type of event-driven architecture, or if it's from a soft skills perspective and attendee that maybe has been elevated to more of a managerial architectural role, and they need to communicate some key technical decision. Again, whether they're making a shift to the cloud or they're, they're doing, they're implementing some type of serverless technology and being able to communicate those concerns to relevant people within the organization. So those to me were two of the biggest themes that we saw emerging, but there are also some other great ones that I think have been perennial, you know, almost evergreen themes that we see and that those relate to fundamentals. We had, again, a couple good trainings, some two-day trainings that really touched on those themes. And it's one of those things where we, we offer a lot of these, um, a lot of these uh, course material at each show, but there's a lot of strong interest in these because, again, there's always, as much as there's so much new technology and, and new themes and new, new areas that are emerging, there's always kind of a need to really, you know, have a firm understanding of what those fundamentals are. And that's, again, both from if you're designing a software architecture to, again, communicating that. Well, was there any, did you get a sense that there was a, a, a buzz about anything? I mean, what, what was the sense of what people were really uh, interested in finding out about when they were attending the conference? Absolutely. You know, so there was a couple, you know, really interesting sessions that touched on some of those themes. Um, again, for one, you know, people were really excited for the software architecture for developers, um, you know, a, a session, which again, was, was, was really packed. It's content we've seen before, but for our show, you know, the biggest thing we've been trying to do that, you know, and communicate to folks is that while this is a show that deals with architecture and what that means and how do I work with it, it's not just for software architects. You know, it is a show that is inclusive also of developers, senior developers, essentially anyone looking to build or has built a system at some type of scale within an enterprise or some type of organization. Um, so there was really a lot of buzz around, again, you know, you know, people that maybe were outside of, again, the traditional, you know, software architect role, but needed to really, you know, and are, are looking to get up to speed on some of these methodologies and best practices for, for transforming their role within an organization. And there's also some really, some there was some really interesting buzz around um, 
a session entitled The Travel Guide to a Software System. I thought that was really interesting. You know, as much as I think, you know, we see, you know, systems being built, it is still hard to navigate all those pieces. And, and how do you understand what goes into each piece? And again, not only do you understand, how do you communicate it? And of course, another emer emerging area um, and one that we are actually offering a two-day training now in, for our New York show in February is this theme of evolutionary architecture. You know, again, we, we start, we're starting to see that, you know, the, the inklings of that now with microservices and some serverless technologies, but almost, you know, you're getting an understanding of what it means to build an evolutionary architecture, an evolutionary system, essentially a system that is built to support change. You know, it's not static. Things are constantly moving. So there was some really good buzz around content that, that really fell into that um, into that bucket. Um, and I feel as if that will be something it's emerging somewhat now, but is going to be a, a perennial theme for us going forward. And we're, we're seeing that in, with the New York show coming up as well. All right. All sounds good, Brian. And uh, we'll do it all over again next February in New York. Uh, Brian, thanks very much for uh, joining us here to, to wrap up the Software Architecture London Conference. Thanks, Jeff. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking. And thank you for listening. Once again, you can view our first guest, Nathaniel Shuda's video, I'm a Software Architect, Now What?, and his presentations at 2017 and 2016 O'Reilly Software Architecture Conferences by going to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. And Nate will be giving a presentation titled Thinking Architecturally at the 2018 Software Architecture Conference coming up on February 25th through 28th in New York City. Nate will also be speaking at the upcoming Spring One platform being held December 4th through 7th in San Francisco, and we'll have links to all these things in the show notes that accompany this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Lyle.